Well, today we begin a series through an incredibly important book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And it's important because from it we learn so much about who the Creator is, who we are, and then what our relationship to Him is supposed to be. And then if you think about the storyline of the Bible, here we're dealing with the creation, we're dealing with the fall of man, and then we deal with the promise of redemption. And if you realize that, you know, what takes place in Genesis chapter 3, so three chapters into the Bible, the rest of the scripture, so the rest of Genesis, and then the other 65 books of the Bible take the time to answer and solve that problem. How does man get back into fellowship and back into a good relationship with God? So in Genesis, we're dealing with a lot of foundational stuff that if you get wrong... The rest of the Bible ceases basically to make sense. The book of Genesis can be broken down into two sections. The first is called primeval history. That's Genesis 1 to 11. And then patriarchal history, which is Genesis 12 on. Um, And both of those sections track and follow four events or four people. So uh, our series for the next nine weeks, we look at Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And there the major events are creation, then you have the fall of man, then you have Noah and the flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel. And then the rest, Genesis 12 on, they track four people. So then you can think Abraham and his descendants. So there you've got Abraham, you have Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. So that's Genesis 1 to 11, and then Genesis 12 on. And our passage this morning reminds us of a number of things about our great creator, And the creation. So if you're taking notes, there are four points. Number one, God is. Number two, point number two, God is the creator of the universe. Point number three, God is personally involved with his creation. God is personally involved with his creation. And then number four, God creates and his creation is good. And uh, we'll just be walking through those points. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter one. In the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Brings us obviously to point number one. God is, in the beginning, God. Okay, so no matter what you believe about the origins of the universe, these four words in English... Communicate the the fact that God was there in the beginning. And in fact, before the beginning. So if you have been raised in this modern world, basically for the last 400 years, um, you respond with something like, okay, prove it, right? Give me the evidence. And then already your mind is thinking about all the different things that surround the issues with creation. You're thinking about, did God create an old earth or a new earth? Did he create in six literal days or was it, um, did he really create everything? But the, but this Genesis account is more of a literary framework. There's so many different things that we in this modern world want to think about other than the fact that God is. And in this day and age, people have been schooled into judging God. Where man determines what is true and false, what, and man determines what is right and wrong. And these words, in fact, are difficult for many. They might, they might be even difficult for you. As they displace us as the judge. 
And instead we're driven, driven back to a point in time and a creation that we cannot fathom. And we ask, but how? How did he go ahead and do these things? Why did he go ahead and do these things? So it's kind of like being back in uh, elementary science class, you know, where you pull out that frog, you slap it on that blue dissecting pad, you spread his appendages, you pin him down, and then you begin carving out this thing that sits right in front of you so that you might have, so that you might be over it. Examine it. But these first four words, there are two words really in Hebrew, in the beginning God, we realize that putting God on the dissecting table just doesn't work because we come face to face with the God who is. He just is. That's what these words tell us. Instead of addressing the how and the why, which is oftentimes what we want to think about, this verse gives us the who and the what, right? So who, who, who's there? Who's the subject of this? This is God. And what? He was there before anything was. So you, our minds want to jump to the how, the prove it, the why. But here we're just asking you guys to hold on just a little bit. Now God will get to the how a little bit. But here the main thing is who this God is and what. He was there before anything was. And throughout history, people, Christians have called this God's self-existence. His self-existence. So for us, we exist because other things caused us to exist, right? My parents came together and they did certain things and here I am. Their parents came, t- came together and did certain things and there they are and so on and so on and so on. But with God, there is no cause. God simply is. He, he is self-existent. And then to back that up, God is also self-sufficient. God is not only self-existent, he has no cause, but he's also self-sufficient. He is independent and needs nothing. He depends on nothing in order to exist. And so we, on the other hand, you guys realize, I mentioned this a couple, a couple weeks ago, you guys realize how dependent we are and how insufficient we are? Um, now, if you guys have studied biology or anything like that, or you have friends who study biology and they want to talk to you about all sorts of different things, you really come to realize how dependent we are. And so if you spend any time talking to Mikkel, who loves physics, Mikkel's not here, he's from South Africa, he goes to Biola, he's not here, um, but he loves physics, and if you sit down and talk with him, he'll tell you about all these different things, <laughs> these theories and whatnot, uh, that most of us don't really bother to think about. But, but here's a little sampling of how dependent we are. If we don't have oxygen, we die. If our blood didn't clot, we die. If we don't have water and food, we die. If we stopped sleeping, we would die. And then you can think about it on a larger level, right? We're dependent on the green vegetation of the earth. How That just speaks and screams of our weakness, doesn't it? We're dependent on the green vegetation of the earth because it's that that produces oxygen, right? If they stop, we stop. We're dependent upon the sun. If it goes, we go. But then if it goes too much, then we also go. Then we're also dependent on the Earth's rotation as it spins by itself. I mean, if you can just think about... I had fun thinking about it. You know, what happens if all of a sudden the Earth just stops spinning? What are the effects that, that, that happens? Right? It provides 
seasons or, or days. But then if the rotation of the earth just stopped, it, we wouldn't have days, really. And you can imagine, you know, six months of winter, especially for the rest of the world, right? That's bad. For the rest of the United States right now, that's bad. For us here in Southern California and then Florida, you know, we say, oh, it's not really a big deal because it's beautiful here, right? It's not negative two, which it will be today later on in the uh, playoff football game. And that's not even including wind chill. So can you imagine six months of winter and then what that would do to the vegetation and what that would do to the people as they would get dispersed and go and live elsewhere and how that would drain the Earth's natural resources in, in that particular area because over there they wouldn't have much. And then we're also dependent on the Earth's rotation around the sun. So if that stopped, you know, what would happen? And then you can think about the laws of gravity. So without gravity, we would fly off into space and die. The planet would shoot away from the sun because there, you know, gravitational pull keeps us close to the sun. And if that all of a sudden stops, well, then the Earth just continues out. And then eventually we die, right? Without gravity, the insides of the earth, which are really hot, eventually they stop spinning too. And then they want to come outside. It's molten, basically. You know, it's molten lava. We die. The earth basically explodes. So you see how many factors we are dependent on for our very existence? But then yet God is bound by nothing. All of these things, he himself actually puts into place and he creates these things god is dependent on nothing he just is he is not caused by anything and he is not dependent on anything and he therefore is over us so he is not before us like a frog on the dissecting pad which so much of us are tempted to think of him as but yet he is over us you know some people they might be in in realization and coming in contact with this God and confrontation with this God, they might be tempted to think, okay, well, really, is this all myth? Is this creation account all myth? In the beginning, this God stuff. Uh, But it's fascinating. If you go and examine the creation myths that were contemporary of Genesis, you know, you come to, to realize that there are some overlap. You know, the fact that there is actually a creation. Or let's say, you know, the heavens and the earth are somehow created. Um, so if you take Babylon's creation myth called the Enuma Elish, you can just Google it if you wanted to read it. It's not that long. It's like a thousand or something lines. Uh, the Enuma Elish. It shares some similarities, but at the same time, it's really different. So that language is sort of over the top. It's flowery and it's epic. Everything is epic in a myth, right? Which is part of the problem with this Noah, uh, this Noah film that's going to come out. Of course, everything there is going to be epic epic and it's going to read it's going to feel really much like uh, the hobbit or the lord of the rings so here's a sampling of what happens in the enuma elish okay you got this god who cohabits with this other god okay immediately we should be thinking right that's that's myth (coughs) they're coming together and then they create a second generation of god like god 2.0 and then you know what happens to those gods the children they're they're a little bit too noisy (laughs) And so the parent gods want to actually go and destroy them. So this is myth, right? The new gods make too much noise and their parents want to kill them. But then this other god comes along and casts a magic spell on the first god and eventually kills him. But then there is revenge, right? 
and then the original god named Tiamat, she, she, uh, she eventually plots revenge, but then their plans fail because the god Marduk steps in and brings victory against this god Tiamat, saws her in half, and through the two halves, one half is, <laughs> makes heaven, and the other half makes earth. And then Marduk comes along with the ingenious plan to use the blood of one of his enemies in order to make man. Right? That is myth. The Bible, on the other hand, you look at these, these handful of verses that talk about the creation account. It reads really differently. It's not a prolonged account, but a simple, straightforward telling of what God did in the beginning. You guys familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis? He was a Christian. He taught at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. He's the guy who wrote, he wrote a lot of books, including The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So he, he focused on myth, right? It was said that at, like, let's say, these various conversations, men would insist to him that portions of the Bible were myth. And it is said of Lewis that in those instances, his reaction wasn't to question whether or not these people were ex- experts in the Bible. His question to them, he wanted to know of these men, well, how many myths have you actually read? And myths were Lewis's business, and it was not his testimony that the biblical accounts were among them, right? You want to find out what is a myth, you ask a myth myth expert. And C.S. Lewis himself, who dealt with myths all the time and who wrote them, said, this is not myth. It doesn't read like myth. So this passage brings us face to face with the God who is there, the real God, who is in fact self-existent and self-sufficient. Point number two, God is the creator of the universe. Look back at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth basically means everything. It's kind of like when we want to refer to the whole entire year... We say, you know, we're ready to play ball in uh, summer and winter or something like that. It's referring to everything, heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1-1 is sort of like a headline for what follows in the, next, in the week of creation. In the beginning, God created everything. And then the rest of the six days tell us what exactly happened. So for the rest of the chapter, we see God creating the original creation, which verse 2 says, look there was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So God here, he creates this original creation that was without form, that was void, that was dark, and then he moves it to order. He brings order to the chaos. And then in the following week of creation, God's work, God works to bring order to that chaos in days one through six. So you can break up those days into two sections. So days one to three... God forms the earth, and then days four to six, he fills the earth. So one to three is forms, four to six is fills. Um, I'll go ahead and read some of that, basically. I'll, I'll summarize one to three. So day one, God forms the light. Day two, God forms the heavens, separating the sea below and the rains above. Day three, God forms the dry land and vegetation. And then look at... Verse 14, I'll go ahead and read that to the end of the passage. And this is where God fills the earth. And God said, let the lights in the expanse of the heavens to, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. 
And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. And that birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, living, living according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then... God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has life of the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so day one and day four, they correspond. Day one, God forms the light. Day four, that's verses 14 to 19, God fills the heavens with lights. Day two, which is verses six to eight, God forms the heavens separating the sea below and the rains above. And then day five, which is verses 20 to 23, God fills the vault of heaven with birds. He fills the sea with sea creatures. And then day three, which is nine to ten, God forms the dry land and vegetation. And then day six, which is basically 24 to 31, God fills the dry land with living creatures, each according to their kind. And then the climax of his creative work, which we're going to look at next week, he creates man. And as God is forming and filling and creating and populating, the narrative shows that God, here we're looking at God, remember, we're being introduced to God. 
we realize that God is utterly distinct from his creation. He is doing all of the creating. And then this is made clear in the creation account. So it starts in the beginning, God created. And then you look what's repeated over and over and over again. You have this great announcement, and God said. That's in verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24. And then in verse 26, it sort of leads up to then God said as he creates man. So then after the announcement, this grand announcement of what he has done is followed by God's great command. It's God's command. Let there be light. Or he says, let there be an expanse. Or he says, let there be dry land. Um, I've shared this uh, example before. Sometimes when me and the kids are having family devotions and we're talking about creation, I tell my children, okay, you know, you give it a try. You go ahead and try and do what God has done. Just speak. And let's see if something comes into existence, because I want you to know just how powerful God is. And of course they say, you know, let there be Shamu or something like that. And of course nothing happens because they aren't God. And then, and then after the great command, there is the great report, which says, and so God made such and such. See, it's all up to God and it's all on God, this great work of creating so who are we looking at? We're looking at God. What are we looking at? We're looking at the fact that he was in the beginning and that creation is all on him. And how? So here's where we do, in fact, get a little bit of the how. It's creation by his word. He simply says and then it happens. He creates something out of nothing. Uh, this is what the Christian worldview holds to. God created something out of nothing. And many today would have us believe and try and convince us that this Christian worldview actually provides the worst possible answer about creation. But I think actually this is false, completely false. The Christian worldview actually provides us the best possible answer for creation, as well as the best answer that helps us understand the world that we live in, and in fact, the best answer that makes sense of our experience. Okay, so, so what are we looking at here? What are our options for how we got here, really? What are, what are our options? It's basically, they come down to two categories. Number one, there was nothing, and then there was something. Okay, if you're writing, if you're writing this down, there was something, and then, sorry, there was nothing, and then there was something. And then that really breaks up into two. Either that was, it's because of God, or because of nothing. Um, and then there is what evolution says. This is the second category. There always has been something, and we are just a product of it. There always has been something, and we are just a product of it. Is evolution the best answer? Is evolution the best answer? You know, in junior high school, I remember my English teacher. I don't know why my English teacher was showing this video on creation. Actually, it was evolution. It was against creationism. Uh, but the English teacher popped in the video, showed it for an hour, and, you know, of course, they're looking at the Big Bang. They're looking at the primordial ooze that oozed just this right way and just this other way, right way with enough energy and in the right direction, and poof, here we are. Um, you know, so, so they're looking at that for an hour, but you know how long they talk about where the stuff of the Big Bang actually came from? About two minutes. And they're just merely describing it. But soon enough, even if you think, which I don't recommend, even if you think that God is behind evolutionary processes, 
Eventually, you got to ask, okay, where does that stuff that banged in the Big Bang actually come from? Where did it come from? That's actually a question that evolution, most evolutionists aren't asking. That's not their intention. Of course, then we're left with the big question still, where exactly did we come from? So, you know, there I was like 13 years old. And I don't think I was a follower of Jesus in every, any real sense of the way that Jesus actually means. So there wasn't anything at stake between me arguing for creationism versus evolution. I just knew, you know, they're really not trying to answer this question. So they either say, evolutionists, they either say at this point in time, if you're asking the question, where did the stuff that banged come from? They say your question is actually invalid. You're not allowed to ask that question. Um, and then the evolutionists that do, here's what they say. This is an MIT physicist named Alan Guth. He says that the stuff of the Big Bang emerged out of nothing. Now keep in mind he's a physicist, and physicists are ruled by numbers. The problem, though, is that mathematicians and other phys physicists who are not believers, they call this uh, sort of incredible, incredible as it, it doesn't match up, it doesn't work, the math doesn't line up. And if you were to say this to Alan Guth, that the physics doesn't line up, he answers, yes, but at the Big Bang, there is what physicists call a singularity, an occurrence in which the normal laws of physics no longer operate. So they themselves are operating off of objective math, okay? And they go as far back as they possibly can until the point of creation, and they are unable to explain that. And so they say, it's a singularity. And so even in that, it's requiring some degree of faith, right? Where did it come from? It came from nothing. Well, can you prove it? Actually, we can't. Don Carson, as he summarizes this um, evolution and creationism, he says that other scientists, and mind you, non-Christian ones, find such theories nonsensical. And he goes on to report that even a non-Christian scientist, a mathematician, a physicist, calls this <laughs> uh, horse manure, but he certainly doesn't use that language. The Christian worldview does not believe that there always was stuff. We believe that something came from nothing and that God is the creator of it. God created something out of nothing. And the something actually ref reflects our great God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and then the earth. And the rest of the Bible has, uh, makes no hesitation, is not, is not ashamed about this fact. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 7. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Romans 4, 17 calls God the one who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Hebrews 11.13, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were, were not made of things which are visible. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, so there's a proclamation for why God is worthy of worship. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for, that's a reason, for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God is the creator of the universe. That's point number two. Now we move on to point number three. God of creation is a personal God. <clears throat> you know that if we had the first five days of creation, 
and that's all we had, we would actually be in a pretty bad situation. Because then we might be led to conclude that God is far off, that he is distant, that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't love, that he doesn't care. He's not relational, he's not personal, and therefore can't really be known. And therefore his will cannot really be known. But thank God we actually have day six where God creates man. So go ahead and turn to verse 26 of chapter 1. Day number six, keep in mind God is filling the dry land and eventually he comes to man. He creates them and then what happens? Look at verse 28. And here we're looking at God as a personal God. It says, and God blessed them. And then what does it say? And then God said to them. So here, all of a sudden, this great, cre- this great creator, in those words, God said to them, immediately we know that he is in fact a personal God. The God who is the great one above us is actually a God who is with us. And then we learn also in the, pre- in the next chapters that he actually desires us to speak with him. So we have a relationship with this great creator. And this is so vastly different than agnosticism and atheism. So agnosticism, or if you are an agnostic, you say that there is some God, but we can't really know this God. And so from man's point of view, you guys have agnostic friends, it's actually a very non-committal faith. Dare we even say a faith without courage? But Christianity says so clearly that we can actually know this God and this God can be trusted. So then the question to you to you or your friends, if they are agnostics, is, well, have you actually looked into what the Bible says? Have you actually studied the claims of Jesus Christ according to the Bible? We can then come to the atheistic evolutionists. Of course, they don't have a, they don't have room for God. They don't certainly have room for a personal God. Evolution is built on impersonal processes. And these impersonal processes exert themselves randomly, mind you, on some sort of impersonal matter 15 to 20 billion years ago. And then after those billions of years, here we are. What then do we make of man? If we are the product of impersonal forces exerting themselves on impersonal matter, what do I make of my stuff? My thoughts? My conscience? What conclusion ought we to draw about the nature of people? One author states, if matter and chance, not a personal God, is the ultimate source of origin, then logically, one must draw the conclusion that human existence is without purpose and meaning. But, he says, and he notes, this is contrary to human experience. Right? We know here that that doesn't do justice to our experience. You don't need an author to tell you this. So through the course of your life, it screams the fact that the life we live and the experiences that we experience are incredibly personal and meant to be that way because that's how God designed us. So you can go ahead and take the loss of a loved one. So if you've ever experienced some degree of suffering as you've watched a loved one die, a loved one die, I mean, how do you mourn? Do you mourn in such a way that actually reflects that you are just a product of impersonal forces exerting themselves on an impersonal stuff? And when we mourn the loss of a loved one, we actually miss them intensely. 
Some of you guys are, are experiencing this even right now as you're watching a loved one die. You are going to miss them intensely and very personally. And you may even want them back because what you're wanting is relationship, right? And that's the way that God designed us. And then you can even ask the question, well, why do we mourn in the first place? This actually reflects our designer as well as the way that we mourn with others reflects our designer. As we seek to lend a heart as we seek to empathize and sympathize and give these mourners our very selves. You see how we're, we're designed inherently to be personal because we're created in the image of God. And we're going to look more about that next week. I mean, thank God that he is a God who speaks to his people. A God who is personal. A God who, in fact, can be known. He creates community and then he actually protects community. You know, on a tangent, um, in terms of evolution uh, being the best worldview, you, you just think about it yourself, right? If, if you're going to have a neighbor, do you want a neighbor um, who thinks that you are a product of impersonal forces exerting themselves on impersonal matter? Do you really want a neighbor like that who then, I mean, what do you make of life if that's all life is? It means that you can simply get rid of life. And so you can think of Hitler, who is a very much a Darwinist sort of a Darwinist given a massive army, <clears throat> the survival of the fittest. And you therefore look at the helpless and you say, I can actually gas them all until they die, which is what he did. He led sort of the mentally disabled into this room and he just simply gassed them because they were deemed not useful. You want a neighbor like that? Who treats life as impersonal forces, impersonal matter? I want a neighbor who actually says, wow, life in and of itself, regardless of if, if people have so-called handicaps or defects or whatever have you. I want a neighbor who says, that is worthy of protection. And so the Christian worldview actually holds society together better than anything else. Because man is worth so much. Because we are made in the image of God. Again, more, more about that next week. He is a personal God who spoke then, and he is a personal God who speaks now. God spoke to the first people, Adam and Eve. God speaks to us today through his word. But you know what the Bible says is God's fullest revelation of himself to man, where he makes himself clearly known. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the word, as Oscar read for us earlier. This is what Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 reads. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the word. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is our God. How is that for a display of relationship? God so loves his creation, who have rebelled against him, that he draws near to them in order to save them. And he does that by becoming one of them. It does bring up a good question, doesn't it? According to Genesis 1, there doesn't appear to be any need for why people need saving. Did you hear that refrain that goes on? After God creates, this brings us to point number four, by the way. God creates and his creation is good. 
God creates and his creation is good. So look at this refrain. Day one, this is in verse one. He creates the light and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, day three, he creates dry land and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, day three, he creates vegetation and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, day four, he creates lights in the expanse and God saw that it was good. 21, 25, 31, they all have the same thing. And then, of course, 31, he sort of surveys everything he's made and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There's no screw-ups there. I mean, can you imagine living in this world with other people where everything is good? Where man and God were in a perfect relationship with one another. Okay, so we should be asking, well, why is it today not that way? What's the explanation? The answer is sin. Our rebellion against God has made the world the way it is today. That is our problem, and every individual's problem, the Bible says. And it's logical, isn't it? If you have a creator who creates you and everything in the world, and we kind of say, I don't really care what you say, and then we go out from underneath his place, his rule, his blessing, it makes sense then that things aren't going to work the way that they're supposed to work, right? And we know this in family life. If you are, have been a rebellious child, you know, I was a rebellious child. You know what happens if you stop functioning in your family the way that your family wants you to? Uh, assuming your parents are good, then things go really bad. Um, so God intended that we were designed to live in God's place, under God's rule, and then to experience God's blessing. But in our rebellion, in our sin, we then have tried to take advantage of God's place to steal his blessing, but all the while rejecting God's rule. And this is mutiny. In kingdom language, this is treason. That's the, way, that's the reason why the world is the way it is. It's not because God made it that way. It's because we made it that way. We rebelled against God and have earned for ourselves God's judgment, death, and ultimately hell. And that takes place. The fall of man, the, first, the sin of man takes place in Genesis 3. And the rest of the Bible seeks to answer that question. How then can man be saved? The good news of Christianity and the gospel of Jesus is that God sent his son then to die on the cross for sins. Where man should have died, God sends his son to take their place. And he does so by bearing, by taking on our sin and the wrath that we deserved. So that everyone who repents and believes can have their debts paid for, their relationship with the creator restored... And be declared not guilty. But the wonderful thing. The, an awesome thing is not only does God go about the work of creation. He goes about the work of recreation. So did you notice who's there with God. In chapter 2. Hovering over the face of the waters. The face of the deep. It's the spirit of God. And through the spirit's power. He then brings order to chaos. Well he does the same for the Christian doesn't he. Or for the one who repents and believes. God recreates us by giving us that spirit. And he gives us a new heart that eventually, that desires now to please Jesus. That desires to walk after his footsteps. And that desires to actually follow and love and obey and then worship God. So through Christ's death we are saved and forgiven and made right. Through his resurrection we are brought to new life and then we are made new. 
The creation account concludes like this. Go ahead and turn there. This is Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here is a God who is not exhausted Because his energy is limited and he exerted it all in work and so he needs to rest. Here is a God who rests because he is deeply satisfied. As he surveys his work of creation, he knows that victory is won. He knows that his work of creation is complete. Where there once was chaos, a formless void in his original creation. Now his creation is brought to a place where he sees it and knows that it is very good. You know, Christians, they celebrate a Sabbath rest as well, not on a particular day, but we celebrate a Sabbath rest in Jesus, as Hebrews 4 says. In our rest, we rest not in remembrance of what we have done, but we rest in Jesus, acknowledging God's great work of creation and God's great work of salvation. And so in our rest in Jesus, when we are saved, we affirm everything there is to affirm about God there in Genesis 1. And so in resting in Jesus Christ, we say that he is the one who is over it all, whether it be creation or salvation, creation and, in fact, salvation. Just as he is the God responsible for creation, so he is the God responsible for salvation. And we can trust him in it all. And so this creation account, you know, as we see God forming the earth and then filling the earth, we're supposed to look at creation And our minds just sort of launch back with our hearts at this great, wonderful God who's created everything. So I would encourage you strongly to just, you know, when you're having your morning devotions, instead of sitting in front of your iPhone, maybe reading through the Bible, you know, take a walk. Early in the morning when you hear the birds chirping. When you see the sun rising and you see actually God's creation and different colors that are there, especially maybe as you look out over the mountains. And you will find yourself, if you're, let's say, reading over Genesis 1, thinking about creation, meditating on it as you live in it, you'll find your heart jumping back to this great, wonderful God who is and who's created everything. J.I. Packer writes this. The message of these early verses in Genesis is this. You've seen the sea? You've seen the sky? The sun, the moon, the stars? You've watched the birds and the fish. You have observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and all the little things together. You have marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who is behind it all. As if to say, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. It was to show us the creator rather than the creation and to teach us knowledge of God rather than physical science that Genesis 1 and 2 were written. So I ask you today, does your heart jump towards God in recognition that he is in fact the creator and Lord? 
If you are living in such a way where you know that you are out of step with this creator, God calls you to repent and believe. That is, turn from your sins and believe in him. And there you find order because he orders your relationship with him by saving you and forgiving you and declaring you right and by drawing near to you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and Creator, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made, for whom everything was made, Lord, we stand before you humbled, recognizing that even in these last days, even perhaps last night, even this morning, we recognize that so many times we live for our own will. We think that we exist so that we might do what we want. But Father in heaven, we confess these sins to you, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive, and you call us to do these things, and you promise that as far as the east is from the west, so far will you remove our sins from us. So Lord, we confess that oftentimes we think and act that like we are God, that we determine what is right and wrong. But Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are in fact the Lord and the King, the Sovereign One who made everything. So we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would cause us to submit to your will. And it's not a tyrannical will, but a loving will. As you graciously create us, you graciously draw near to us, and you graciously give us your word that speaks about how we are to live as we live our lives in faith in Jesus Christ. We praise you this day as our great creator. In your name we pray. Amen.